welcome to the Australian Histories podcast. In episode 20 today, I'm going to reflect on the construction of the iconic Sydney Harbour Bridge, that impressive bridge that was a long time coming. We'll look at its path to construction, threaded through the history of growth and colonial settlement in Sydney, including the political development and machinations at the state, federal and even international level, all of which impacted on the major infrastructure programs in New South Wales, including the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And then, of course, we must consider the working of more than six million rivets into the steel structure by construction workers operating on a hazardous project in a time of dubious or non-existent industrial safety concerns and in a period of rising economic depression and political turmoil. As well as finally solving a major transport problem, and opening up easy access between the city and the North Shore, the bridge was considered a symbol of Australia's maturity and a display of our engineering and construction skills. It was the pride of the people as they watched the amazing structure reach out across the harbour to become the most recognisable icon of Sydney. Well, until the Opera House, of course, but that's another story. The bridge, as a beautiful and pragmatic work of engineering, remains an impressive practical and working physical structure for today's Sydney siders. The bridge also embodies links to many other Aussie stories, from a gate crasher at the ribbon cutting, a nine-year-old making his way 1,000 kilometres to be at the opening, to an interesting backstory for Crocodile Dundee. So let's have a look at the story of the old coat hanger. But just before we get started on the story, I mentioned last time that I hope to briefly recommend a pod I enjoy each episode in case it's of interest to you also. I love getting a heads up from friends who've found something good, so have a listen for that at the end of the episode. And remember, there are some supporting materials for this topic on the webpage at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au What does everybody say? It's the bridge we've been waiting for Like a giant of steel At last the dream is real Doesn't it make you feel you love old Sydney more Right across the dear old heart Last episode, we had a look at the platypus controversy Quite the departure from the series on bushrangers previous to that This time, again in these single episodes, we're going to go off on another unrelated tangent to see what we can find in the backstory of the construction of our well-known Sydney Harbour Bridge. Though, amazingly, there is a thin link back to the platypus story. Historian Richard Raxworthy reminds us of a quite prophetic poem about Sydney, written way back in 1791 by Dr Erasmus Darwin, the grandfather of Charles Darwin, who was reflecting on our platypus and evolution. I didn't spend much time exploring Erasmus himself, so don't quote me here, but I think the poem was written not from Erasmus having visited Sydney, but from interest and impressions he'd gathered from Governor Arthur Phillip. The interesting thing about the poem is his positive vision of the growth and future of the then very new penal settlement in Port Jackson. It suggests ideals for Sydney's development and there, amazingly, is his 1791 prediction of an arched bridge over the harbour. I'll quote a small section of his future vision here. There shall broad streets their stately walls extend, the circus widen and the crescent bend. There, raid from cities o'er the cultured land, shall bright canals and solid roads expand. 
There, the proud arch, colossus-like, bestride yon glittering streams and bound the chasing tide. Embellished villas crown the landscape scene, farms wave with gold and orchards blush between. Well, well, so Erasmus thought we could make good out of the rabble of convict jetsam that England had dumped here on the far side of their world. Anyway, it's nice to have these small links between the episodes. We know that several distinct indigenous language groups occupied the Sydney Basin before British arrival. The largest, noted by Heritage New South Wales as the Daruk language group. The local people living around the harbour would have used its surrounds for shelter, food and for cultural observances. The harbour and the land north and south would have been familiar to them and they would have had no trouble getting themselves about in their canoes. The British, on arrival, were also able to navigate to the North Shore in their boats, but the desire to straddle the harbour was on their minds from the very early days, and a proposal was put forward in 1815 by the then colonial architect Francis Greenway. Greenway, previously a convict, was sent out to Port Jackson for forgery, so already the opportunities in the new colony were turning around the lives of London's refuse. Greenway making a spectacular rise, now using his drawing skills for good instead of evil. His work can be seen in many of the government buildings in Sydney from that time, including Hyde Park Barracks, Macquarie Lighthouse, the old government house at Parramatta and the Supreme Court of New South Wales, amongst others. Raxworthy records that the first actual sketches for a bridge were probably those of engineer Peter Henderson in 1857. If you are not familiar with Sydney, the city sits some way up the beautiful and extensive harbour, at pretty much one of the narrow points in the harbour between south and north. The city, and now the central business district, developed from that Port Jackson settlement on the south side of the harbour. The northern side of the harbour also saw colonial development, though the additional effort required for transport kept it limited for many years. It must have been a constant frustration not to be able to easily get yourself and your goods from one side to the other, and no doubt there would have been costs involved too in using any boats once commercial operators began. By the time the authorities were getting close to actually considering the construction of a bridge, the ends of such a bridge would need to be placed at what was called Dawes Point on the south side, leading straight into the existing road infrastructure that had developed in the city over the years, and at Milsons Point opposite on the North Shore, also developed early as a waterside hub. The shape of the harbour allowed for shipping access deep into the sheltered waters, and over the years, several busy ports and industrial complexes developed along the harbour edges as the colony expanded. Most of these were further west into the harbour, past Sydney City itself. The need to ensure that shipping access could continue to these port facilities would complicate and therefore delay any bridge proposal for decades. While there was development on the North Shore, access from there to the growing city on the south side was difficult, requiring travelling via road and bridges further west, where the harbour narrowed and any bridge did not impede the shipping, or via ferries and boats that operated across the harbour from various points. The problem was, the more development that occurred over the decades, the more the solution became complicated. A workable solution would be a massive feat for a young country to take on, but by the 1880s the necessity became quite pressing. 
In 1881, the then New South Wales Premier Henry Parks was the first to formally get the ball rolling with a cabinet minute indicating he would go ahead with a proposal for a high-level bridge across the harbour. But he lost government several months later and so this initial plan petered out. Spirit, a long-time bridge enthusiast and history professor, records in his book Sydney Harbour Bridge A Life that proposals came and went over the following decades with two royal commissions undertaken and an advisory board report to look into and provide a suitable solution. Both tunnels and bridges were considered, but successive governments just couldn't make the decision. By the late 1800s, transport in general was becoming a major problem around Sydney, and I'm guessing those who live there today might say nothing's changed. People needed to move about, but traffic on the water was by then heavily congested. And even with horse-drawn vehicles giving way to trams, capacity was still limited. Rail with multiple carriage capacity was good, but it required updated lines and connections to function well. And rail still would not span the harbour. So a more integrated transport plan was required, and a modern electric suburban railway network was designed to address those needs. If the developing railways could be extended across the water somehow, it would greatly improve the prospects for Sydney. And so, moving into the 1900s, it was now clear that a scheme incorporating a rail service across the harbour via a bridge or a tunnel must be found. In 1908, a pressure group called Sydney and North Sydney Bridge League lobbied hard and they brought on the last Royal Commission. As Spirit called them, the tools preferred when the government wanted to look like they were doing something. The 1908 Commission noted that ferry services at the time to the North Shore moved 13 million passengers per year. This when a population locally was around 500,000. So it was a mobile population, and with such a lucrative trade, one can imagine that the ferry companies would not have been amongst those supporting the bridge or a tunnel. But their passenger numbers continued to grow, reaching a peak in the 1920s of 47 million passenger trips. Even today, with Sydney's population at around 5 million and many more options for traversing the harbour being available, those ferries still carry more than 15 million passengers and the ferries remain attractive, practical and an integral part of Sydney's transport network around the harbour. So the companies needn't have worried about being put out of work. The Commission heard many ideas, with quite a bit of support for a tunnel owing to the height being required for shipping access under any bridge and suggesting that that height would mean any bridge would be too large and imposing to be aesthetically pleasing, instead being a blight on the beautiful harbour. But in the end, the costs associated with the construction of a deep tunnel and its future upkeep costs ruled that out as a viable solution. A road tunnel was eventually built under the harbour, opening in 1992. So the tunnel idea also endured the decades-long delays that the bridge had experienced before it finally found its time. Deciding on an appropriate design and covering the costs remained the major problem, especially as large and expensive rail projects were by then already under construction around Sydney. It seemed that once again the Commission might draw to a close with no suggestions being taken up. But fortunately, one dedicated engineer in the Public Works Department John Bradfield, would champion the project. So maybe after pretty much 40 years of flailing about, it looked like Bradfield might be able to cobble together some kind of consensus amongst those in power. 
He had the drive and the negotiation and public relations skills that might actually be able to get the result this time. Initially, working on an overall plan for the city railway scheme, with his big picture view, he became the engineer in charge of a newly formed Sydney Harbour Bridge and City Transit branch of the Public Works Department. After exploratory trips to England, Europe and North America, in 1914 he returned and suggested the overall plan that could address Sydney's needs. The positives would perfectly justify the costs. His report was very well received, bringing together all the current projects into a cohesive plan, integrating the harbour crossing. He made suggestions on the type of bridge that might meet the needs of the rail, vehicle and pedestrian traffic, and for a long time, the suggested cantilever design bridge noted in this report was expected to be the one that would go ahead. To the great joy of many, a bill suggesting the Bradfield scheme was to be presented to Parliament in 1915. And it did seem like it would go ahead with a good level of consensus amongst the politicians. But in the end, it was world politics and not local difficulties that once again brought the plan to a halt. Developments in Europe would impact on any development plans in Sydney. Funding was becoming increasingly difficult to get from the English financiers, and the rail electrification project, which was already set to go ahead, had to be postponed. In April 1916, when the bridge bill finally made it to the House, the Great War was already underway, and all available funds were now being diverted to the war effort. Once again, the essential crossing infrastructure was placed on the back burner until well after the war ceased in 1918. By 1921, Bradfield was again campaigning for his now revised scheme, and in early 1922, work began again on the delayed underground railway in the city. Money was still a problem, but the necessity for action was now greater than ever, and the Sydney Harbour Bridge Act was finally passed at the end of 1922. Bradfield immediately began drafting the detailed brief and getting tenders for joining the railway and roads across the harbour. Bradfield was still willing to consider a cantilever style that could meet the requirements, but in researching current designs around the world and doing the calculations himself, he became convinced that an arched bridge might provide a better solution and use less steel, which should allow for a cheaper price. He added three words to the tender document, or an arch. Twenty tenders were received from six companies, the most expensive coming in at over £10 million, and the lowest just under half that amount. So Bradfield set about reviewing the designs. Though cost was certainly of major importance, Bradfield had some other considerations too. Spirit records him noting one design as novel and more rigid than the usual suspension bridge being achieved by sacrificing beauty of outline in the stiffening truss. Apparently the stiffening allowed for cables and the suspension from above to be finer than expected, almost vanishing from sight at a distance, which one might think would be a good outcome when desiring to preserve the views across the harbour. But Bradfield's concern was that the public would expect the resulting structure to not only stay up, but to look like it would stay up. So that design was deemed just a little too novel. Also rejecting those that were too severe, too massive or not harmonious, the winning design was to him the most aesthetically pleasing, and he spoke of the arch as, quote, 
one of the highest forms of expression of modern engineering practice, unquote. Fortunately, it was also one of the cheapest. Dorman, Long and Co. from Middlesbrough, England, tendered that winning arch design, described as, quote, a two-hinged arch with abutment towers faced with granite masonry, unquote. Engineers may know what that description means, but we will learn that this is the description of the wonderful bridge we see in place across the harbour today, which Bradfield found was engineered with excellence, allowing for exceptional design, giving the required strength, while keeping the amount of steel, and therefore the cost, to a minimum. And of course, Meccano users worldwide would delight in the models that would become available. Coming in at £4,217,722, it also included the highly attractive bonus that the company had two existing steel fabricating shops already in Australia one in Melbourne and one in Sydney, and they were already producing the medium heavy steel of the type that would be required. The tender documents had some requirements related to local content and local builders. Quote, to utilise as far as is reasonably practicable all the materials called for by this specification which are being manufactured in New South Wales, unquote. meaning if it was made here it should be used. While a good deal of the steel would need to come from England, the notion that the existing local Dorman Long fabricators could obtain a portion of their materials from the newly opened Broken Hill Proprietary Company, or BHP as we might more recently know it, which had opened in Newcastle in 1915, was an attractive one for the government, providing those ever-important local jobs. The granite would be quarried from the south coast town of Moria, and so those jobs would help convince the Labour Party to support the Conservative government, who had just come to office, in getting the project off the ground. Just as an aside, we think it a new phenomenon that our politicians are spinning in and out of a revolving door in these current times, but I tell you, this era in New South Wales politics was stunning for its turnover. Bradfield knew the arch would be harder to construct than the cantilever, but that the solid rock foreshore allowed for well-tested engineering solutions to be used there. The costings were rigorously checked by the Public Works Department, and his recommendation was made and accepted. Amongst all the goodwill and enthusiasm, Dorm and Long were able to negotiate in fixing the price of their contract for the government to cover costs of any subsequent wage rises over the course of the build, and this proved to be a very clever clause for them. Bradfield had noted in his final report, quote, future generations will judge our generation by our works. For that reason, and from consideration of the past, I have recommended granite, strong, imperishable, a natural product, rather than a cheap artificial material for the facing of the peers. At times of national rejoicing, when the city is illuminated, the arch bridge would be unique in that it could be illuminated." Unquote. He was speaking in particular of representing the sun and crown of our military badge here, lights perhaps shining behind it to illuminate outwards from the design, on Anzac Day for example. But if he could just see the fireworks that bridge launches each New Year's Eve, he would be gobsmacked I'm sure. And he was right about the aesthetics of the piers. Those towers perfectly bookend the brilliant steel arch, and they look solid and beautiful in their Art Deco styling. Well, that's my view anyway. I've seen some of the other drawings, and I agree with Bradfield that we did end up with the best of those designs. The railways and underground electrified lines around Sydney were visibly progressing, 
and now the bridge was about to bring the city together. Bradfield was celebrated and given no end of accolades, including great praise from Victoria's war hero and engineer of influence John Monash. Quote, These works are undoubtedly of exceptional magnitude, being in some respects unique in engineering practice. Unquote. So the long-desired project finally began, amid great public interest, expectation and delight, with the first excavations occurring in January of 1925. The South End approach, crossing at Dawes Point, would need to come right through the rocks, as the area remaining is called today. And on the north side, Milson's Point would need to be reclaimed. In total for both sides, more than 800 houses and businesses would need to be demolished to make way for the works, and May 27 saw the first of those demolitions. These areas were largely working class, housing dock workers in the poorest of Sydney, the building of the bridge was so popular and there was so much goodwill that the usually very powerful port workers unions did not want to make a fuss, instead just making a polite representation to the government to request that, quote, provision be made for housing for the workers who will lose their homes, unquote. So building owners did actually get some sort of financial compensation, but the kind of public housing that would have helped the poor and the tenants was not forthcoming until the 1950s. On the north side, the existing station and ferry arcade was relocated further around to Lavender Bay. The ferry companies did receive a good sum of nearly £280,000 compensation and, of course, the new ferry terminal had to be operating before they could begin demolition. So they would not have been too badly inconvenienced. On the south side, the Presbyterian church there was granted a corner block on the hill to relocate to, but the displaced poor on both sides, well, they were on their own. So the bridge building proceeded at pace. The government gave Dorman Long access to the Moria Quarry and with more than 15,000 cubic metres required, most available local stonemasons had work lined up there. Indeed, they needed to bring in hundreds more international stonemasons to ensure that enough material would be ready for the bridge work. And 72 little cottages were built near the quarry site to house some of the workforce and their families, creating what came to be known as Granite Town. The site of the old ferry terminal was remodelled and used by Dorman Long as their steel fabrication site, directly beside the bridge. The site worked 24 hours a day over the course of the build, though again at this time the area would already have been predominantly working class industrial, so the activity and noise was perhaps not a shock to the remaining locals. By September of 1926, the foundations for the approaches and the pylons and anchor points for holding the arch during construction were well underway. The anchoring points for the temporary steel cables were installed in the bedrock to pull and hold the arch steel up during construction. The top arch would begin jutting forward above the water with the cranes creeping along the top of the structure at the front end, bringing up each section of steel from the barge below. The spans would then meet in the middle and the temporary steel cables could be removed. Then the hanging deck could be constructed underneath the arch, making its way back outwards towards the pylon towers. The 128 special steel wire cables that were to pull back and hold the arches in place until they met and became self-supporting in the centre were made in England. They anchored back, as I mentioned before, into the bedrock through a looped anchorage tunnel 40 metres deep. Sherritt reports each cable was capable of taking 467 tonnes of stress, though the design never required them to hold more than 117 tonnes. 
thus giving them each four times the strength they actually required for the task. Again, Bradfield was happy with the cautious and over-engineered system. As the arch grew, the supporting cables were regularly tensioned to allow for the increasing weight cantilevering out over the water. In the engineering calculations, the tall Art Deco style pylons are purely decorative above the road level. The arch itself carries the loads and stresses back to the bedrock. Bradfield had included them as such substantial looking towers for aesthetic reasons, feeling that it would balance the look of the bridge and provide the ever important visual clue to the public of strength and solidity. So it was all coming along nicely, and the Sydney siders enjoyed following the almost daily progress reports in the papers. But the real interest increased once the steel arches began reaching out over the water. The public could actually see the bridge curving skywards as the weeks passed, from the very many vantage points around the harbour. If you travelled by ferry to Circular Quay, you would get a very impressive view, perhaps even travelling under the work in progress above. Australians were proud of the emerging structure, feeling it a positive symbol of Australia's engineering and construction prowess. As the regular high-volume ferry traffic had to continue on the harbour below, it was imperative that no steel or other materials would drop below, and that the steel barge could manoeuvre into the correct position for the cranes above. It was a tricky exercise, with the ferries and other harbour traffic having to adjust their navigation routes as the working edge of the arch moved from month to month. The crane activity was moderated by controllers on the barges via a phone link to the crane cabins above. On the 19th of August in 1930, the two sides of the arch were ready to be joined. The arch has two main girder sections to meet in the middle there. The underside, with its just over one metre gap remaining, would be closed first the temporary cables slowly being released, allowing the sides to sag together over the afternoon. The process took about six hours to complete, ensuring each section was carrying an equal weight at the bearing pin in the centre. The following morning, the bridge marked the momentous occasion by flying the Union Jack from one crane and the Australian flag from the other to advertise to the public the closing of the arch. Planes flew above to celebrate. In the words of Lawrence Ennis, Dorman Long's main supervising engineer on the bridge, quote, We felt that the arch had become not only a link between the two shores of our beautiful harbour, but a further bond of empire, unquote. The top side of the arch was more quietly closed about three weeks later, on the 8th of September, and only then was the arch structure fully complete. And what an impressive sight it must have been, just the arch, without the road deck structure so familiar to us now. Someone described it as a poetic curve across the harbour. The next feat was to construct the deck, and again this was to be done by hoisting the hangars horizontally from a barge below, by the still handy creeping cranes and hanging them off the arch, starting from the centre and working outwards. That proceeded much more quickly and was ready for road surfacing in only nine months. The railway and tramway infrastructure was then added and the impressive tower structures at either end were dressed in their beautiful granite to the finished height of 87 metres. Spirit reminds us that at this time the surrounding buildings were height limited to 46 metres so those towers and the massive steel structure must have completely dominated the sight lines from just about anywhere with a view of the Sydney Harbour area. 
Towards the end of the building process, as they were readying for congratulatory plaques, commemorations and ceremonies, trouble arose amongst the project management teams. The dispute centred on who should actually be credited as being the bridge designer. Freeman from Dorman Long had done the detailed drawings to meet the tender contract, but Bradfield had provided the initial design. Each believed themselves to be the designer, and therefore should be commemorated as such. But in the end, the bitter dispute was settled, though not happily, with a compromise. Layla, in his book called The Bridge, suggests Freeman certainly was responsible for the exact design, but with the details differing little from Bradfield's drawings. And it was acknowledged the bridge would never have come about as it was without Bradfield's first designs. So memorial plaques on the structures list them both as designers. Before use, the bridge was to be publicly tested to ensure safety and confidence. This spectacular test was to be undertaken in February of 1932 by shunting 92 locomotives back-to-back, weighing more than 8,300 tonnes, onto the bridge. There was never any doubt about the design strength for the engineers, who understood the capacity in the design, but it was a wonderful public relations exercise, and another chance for Bradfield to be fated as an engineering hero. While the project team were mindful of the safety required for the harbour ferries below, at this time the safety of workers was not a high priority and 16 men lost their lives during the construction. A look at any of the photographs from the time do make for very uncomfortable viewing. The work environments prickled with potential danger and they had only a limited array of safety equipment, such as goggles for those working with the rivets, but no harnesses or nets for the work at height or indeed much other now common safety equipment. And of course, the six million rivets used in construction needed to be heated to a near molten state so they could be hammered into place before cooling. That would have been a job from hell. So the bridge construction provided a lot of dangerous and uncomfortable activities. The first death was recorded in April 1926, that of Harry Waters, a 50-year-old crane dogman who was injured at the quarry site and died the following day. 63-year-old Robert Craig died in September of 1926 after a fall from one of the approach spans at Milson's Point. In March of 27, 30-year-old Percival Poole died at the quarry, probably from a blasting incident. Also in 1927, Engel Peterson, a rigger, was injured in the fabricating workshops, breaking his spine there, and he died six months later. Early December of 1927, a 22-year-old Scottish riveter, Nathaniel Swandles, fell from the eighth span and drowned. Then, just five weeks later in February 28, 42-year-old William Woods fell to his death from a gantry at Milson's Point. And Edward Shirley also died in 1928, a few days after a collapse in one of the structures on the approach. Now the unions were becoming very concerned about the losses. In April of 1928, the workers on the bridge were awarded extra compensation for the height dangers, but no actual change to work conditions resulted. There were other wage rise requests during the build, and Dorman Long supported most to placate and incentivise their workforce particularly because they had negotiated a line in the contract which meant the government would have to pick up the tab. Very savvy. The government's extra costs for increased wages was said to be in excess of £800,000 over that seven-year project. 
In March of 1929, 48-year-old rigger Thomas McKeon died after he fell from a 50-metre platform, becoming entangled in the chains on the way down. The following year, 1930, again in March, 25-year-old Sidney Addison was tightening a nut when his spanner slipped and he fell backwards, 50 metres into the water. He survived the impact but was drowned before anyone could reach him. Frederick Gillen also died that year when a structure he was standing on collapsed underneath him. 1931 was a bad year. Alfred Edmonds, a labourer working at the quarry, crushed his thumb. And this allowed tetanus or some other infection in, and he died 11 days later from that injury. Robert Graham was knocked over and killed on the worksite by a tram. And in March of that year, a 40-year-old rigger, John Faulkner, was struck by an iron plate and he died soon afterwards. In July, a 52-year-old dogman, James Chilvers, was knocked from the workshop wharf into the water where he drowned. And just a couple of weeks afterwards, a 23-year-old painter, John Henry, was killed in a fall from the bridge. 45-year-old James Campbell was to die in February 1932, just weeks before the opening, as the building site was being dismantled. Poor James was blown off a beam while in the process of dismantling the scaffolding. These deaths, though mourned and acknowledged by the project managers, seemed to be treated as an inevitable cost for the nature of the work, and there was generally very little outrage or complaint at the lack of safety equipment. They were just not that enlightened then. Attitudes to heights, working without harnesses or guardrails, were all a little cavalier, though some other work sites, especially overseas at the time, were using harnesses and netting when working at height. Most of these men were single and the funeral costs were covered, but no compensation was offered to the extended families. In general, the authorities downplayed the losses and, of course, the nature of the job and the construction techniques would have added a degree of difficulty. And given that the project ran for seven years, the volume of workers and the generally hazardous construction necessity, it was probably a miraculously low number, really. But harnesses, safety rails and nets may well have prevented at least half those deaths. And, of course, many other workers would have been injured, some substantially, in the dangerous workplaces, but those men remained a hidden cost. In general, the authorities would, on the whole, have been pretty satisfied with the progress and outcome of the construction. The finishing touches were being completed early in 1932, and many of those workers would then be rejoining the unemployment lines at the peak of the Depression, so they would have been grateful for the good wages while they lasted. Plans for an official opening were underway, and the date set for Saturday, March 19, 1932. In an era when Saturday was generally still a work day for most, the Premier declared it a public holiday. In the grip now of the Depression, any boost to morale would be welcomed. Normally the monarch or their representative might be expected to cut a ribbon for such a spectacular project, and the Prime Minister may have anticipated a role too. But the New South Wales Premier was Labour man Jack Lang, and he was insistent that he and the New South Wales people would do the honours. Of course, the Governor-General, as the monarch's representative, would be invited to make the first speech at the opening, but Lang himself would cut the ribbon and open the bridge for his New South Wales constituents. There had not been a harmonious relationship between Lang and the federal government, nor indeed the Governor-General. While the bridge had been a desired construction for decades, and the project had wide bipartisan support in the main, the years between the wars were tumultuous times for Australian politics. 
Returning soldiers found work scarce and there were lots of disruptive industrial disputes while the new order shook itself out. There was a visible rise in interest in communism after the Russian Revolution at one end of the spectrum and fascism at the other. Though the Labour Party in Australia rejected any association with the communists, their affiliation with trade unions made them an untrusted target for the rising nationalists in the 1920s. After World War I had Australians fighting a terrible war for God, King and Country, there were factions amongst those returned soldiers willing to behave militantly to defend the ideals of empire with more than just their vote. One such group called themselves the New Guard. Britain and Australia had spent a lot of money fighting World War I and Britain was no longer the financial powerhouse it had once been. Australia, relying in the past on a healthy export trade to Britain, found itself with a weakened income, its old mother country less able to, or interested in, paying for Australian goods. Things were financially strained, and as we have seen over and over again, there were differing approaches to finding a solution to the slowing economy. Federal Labor came to power, led by Scullin, just as the Wall Street crash occurred in 1929. The depression was about to really bite, prices for our primary produce and resources plunged, and this would exacerbate the difficulty of meeting repayments on our foreign loans. In 1930, more than one in five adult males in New South Wales was without a job. And Lang vigorously opposed the austerity measures that the federal and other state governments were demanding. Lang refused to tighten his belt instead continuing with the infrastructure projects that provided some work and stimulus for the New South Wales economy. In 1930, he ran again for the New South Wales government and won, so he felt quite justified in continuing on his path. At an economic crisis conference between the states and federal government in 1931, Lang announced his own program for economic recovery. The Lang plan advocated pausing interest repayments on debts to Britain, and freeing up funds to stimulate the economy, along with a number of other audacious suggestions. He was on his own in this thinking, and his scheme led to another schism in the Labour Party, while the Conservatives, of course, were incensed. This could not stand. What Lang was doing was an outrage, even illegal. So various machinations played out, while the Federal Government tried to extract funds from New South Wales, one way or another, to cover the debts owed and the political situation remained tense and tumultuous. In New South Wales, the New Guard, a particularly aggressive and militant nationalist movement, saw Lang as a dangerous tyrant that needed deposing. For them, he represented a break from the imperial loyalty they had all just fought for in the Great War. The New Guard said they stood for, quote, unswerving loyalty to the throne, all for the British Empire, sane and honourable government throughout Australia, suppression of any disloyal and immoral elements in government, industrial and social circles, abolition of machine politics, and maintenance of the full liberty of the individual, unquote. Well, not the full liberty of the individual, I think, seeing as the previous line stated suppression, if the individual's agenda did not line up with theirs, I imagine. Anyway, the movement appealed to those conservative return servicemen who were strongly anti-communist and who were suspicious of Lang. Eric Campbell, the New Guard's leader and a World War I vet, gave the movement a quasi-military structure. Membership numbers are hard to confirm, but they range from several thousand to tens of thousands, with the majority membership in Sydney. 
A Conservative Prime Minister, Joe Lyons, replaced Scullin's Labor government early in January of 1932, just as the bridge was being completed, and he promised electors he would get rid of Lang in New South Wales. Campbell said his new guard would assist, telling members at a meeting in January 1932 that they pledged themselves to rid the state of a nasty tyrant. Their actions ranged from beginning a petition to physical and violent confrontations with attendees at left-wing meetings, and there were even rumours that they were making plans to kidnap the New South Wales Labor Cabinet, with Campbell actually threatening to take a meat axe to Lang. But one thing that really got their goats, as they say, was Lang's snub to royalty in insisting on opening the bridge himself. Campbell and the new guard worked themselves into a frenzy, declaring that, quote, Lang would never open the Harbour Bridge, unquote. In his mind, Lang was an enemy of the Empire and his behaviour disloyal and disrespectful. So the new guard felt they had every justification to behave that way towards Lang himself. As the date approached, all the important players in the government and the construction project were allowed a number of tickets to distribute for the opening ceremony. A parade with floats and marching groups was choreographed around the official commemoration. There was to be a procession of ships below the bridge and planes making flights above. When it was suggested that the next of kin of the workmen who died might lead the procession, that was quickly rejected as too sombre for the celebratory day. 52,000 school children would be allowed to walk across the new bridge in the days prior to the official opening, and there were no end of souvenir items available. It was to be a landmark celebration. It was reported that the opening brought together the largest gathering of people ever seen in Sydney to date, possibly reaching one million. And this crowd reflected the interest in the bridge from all over Australia and internationally as well. There is one fantastic story of a young boy who had been so absorbed by the engineering and construction of the bridge that he'd convinced his father to let him travel to Sydney for the opening. Historian Peter Laylor, in his comprehensive book The Bridge, recounts the amazing story of nine-year-old Lenny Gwyther, a farm boy with an almost obsessive interest in engineering, who had been following the bridge's construction with great interest, reading the reports and poring over the pictures for almost all of his life. The eldest child on the farm, Lenny helped with the chores, as kids did in those days, but when his father, a returned soldier known as the Captain, was injured and had to be sent to a Melbourne hospital, Lenny stepped up. It was just at the time that the Captain should have been preparing for the next crop. It would be a big blow for the family's income to forfeit the crop, on top of the personal worry about their father. So, young Lenny felt he must do the work himself in his father's absence. Amazingly, the nine-year-old, using a four-horse team, set about ploughing and preparing the 24-acre plot himself. As Layla noted, it would have been back-breaking work for a grown man, let alone a prepubescent boy. That part of the tale itself is an amazing story of resilience and dedication. But he was clearly a lad with focus. When his father returned home, he was so impressed by the boy's efforts that he told Lenny he deserved a reward. Lenny said what he really wanted was to be at the bridge opening and that he'd even worked out how he might get there on his pony, Ginger Mick. Again, his father was impressed by his determination, planning skills and pluck. Though still so young, the captain thought Lenny could do it and though there were some reservations from his wife, the family decided to send Lenny off on his mission. Even for that time, their decision raised a few eyebrows. 
The boy would be leaving the rural townships, travelling almost a thousand kilometres alone into the biggest city in Australia to arrive amongst vast numbers of revellers celebrating around the harbour. It was quite a feat, and I expect anyone suggesting that kind of adventure would be suitable for their nine-year-old today would probably be getting a visit from child services. But the captain thought him capable. It would make a man of him. By February 1932, he was ready to start on his 35-day trek to Sydney. The Leongatha locals by then had heard about the adventure, and the local paper reported the following brief entry. Quote, Feats of endurance in men are often quoted, but a feat by a lad of nine years of age is about to be made. We refer to Lenny Gwyther, son of Captain Leo Gwyther and Mrs Gwyther of Leongatha South. This youth has been invited to spend a holiday with friends in Sydney and he intends to make the journey on the pony he has used to ride to school daily. His idea is to be present at the opening ceremony of the world's largest bridge in March. Friends of the parents will wish Lenny every success in his undertaking. While there would have been many concerned about the wisdom and safety of the idea, no one could fail to be impressed by his determination. So Lenny set off on Ginger Mick, with a small swag of clothing and camping equipment from the Leongatha showgrounds on February 3rd. He carried an official letter of introduction from his local mayor to present to the mayor in Sydney. He had some friends and family to stay with on his way, closer to home, but he often camped or simply knocked on doors to get permission to rest his horse and stay for the night. Many people then offered him food and a bed once he had explained what he was up to. One family friend happened to be a vacuum oil salesman and he sent word out to the other sales representatives between Terralgan and Sydney, asking them to look out for Lenny on the road and provide any assistance if they came across him in their travels. But it could all have gone very badly. Just days into his trek he was heading east, just as the massive 1932 bushfires were developing in Gippsland, around Noogee, Warrigal and Erica. These were very serious fires. Nine people perished after being trapped near O'Shea's mill, and Lenny spent a couple of days travelling through substantial smoke. As we know, these fires can turn with a wind change, so it really was not the time for him to be on the road alone. But fortunately, rains came in on the following day, bringing some relief. Of course, though Lenny rode alone, as the trip progressed and his story spread, he was offered more and more help and accommodation from the interested public along the way. It was a romantic notion, from Australia's past really, Lenny and his horse invoking the bush characters from folklore as described by Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson and the pony's name, Ginger Mick, had of course come from C.J. Dennis. So Lenny's trip captured the imagination and as he progressed, media interest increased, attracting yet more attention. His father drove up to accompany him through the remote high plains from Can River across the Great Dividing Range and then he returned home satisfied that Lenny was coping well and still excited about his adventure. To that point only one household had refused to assist him when he had knocked but of course now he was getting invitations for accommodation and assistance in advance. By the time he had ridden down into the plains approaching Canberra he was quite the celebrity. His federal member from Leongatha, a Mr Patterson, hosted an afternoon tea for him at Parliament House. The press suggested he was a little overwhelmed and bewildered, being described as, quote, a typical bush lad, unassuming and casual and tremendously interested in machines and engines, a real Aussie with that inborn pluck, unquote. He continued being fated by local dignitaries as he made his way to Sydney and he was presented along the way with souvenirs and gifts in appreciation for his trek, including a cricket bat, 
autographed by the famous Australian cricketer Donald Bradman. He was given a celebrity welcome in Martin Place in the city, along with a formal invitation to the opening of the bridge. He would join the procession riding on Ginger Mick. This must have been a delight to a boy so enthralled with the bridge and its construction to be right amongst it at the memorable event. But the bridge was the thing for Linny. He was never comfortable with the attention his ride attracted, and he was happy to return to anonymity in quietly and gather south afterwards. He retained his interest in engineering and engines, though fate did not allow for a university education for Lenny, he did go on to be the expert on the farm's machinery and later took up engineering works in an automobile factory in Melbourne. It's a shame, really, that the public interest didn't convert into someone capable, assisting Lenny to pursue his engineering interests more formally. But apparently he was perfectly happy afterwards to let his fascinating story fade into history. Some of his family still remain in the Gippsland area, and coincidentally, while I was writing this episode, I happened to be listening to a podcast during a long drive. I am always downloading and stockpiling them for these long trips, and there was, amazingly, an episode from December 2018 on an ABC podcast called The History Listen about Lenny's story. A music teacher wanting to find an interesting story for her classes wrote a play about Lenny the Legend's adventure which was a huge hit for the school and was also played in Lenny's hometown in front of some of his family. That's just brilliant. I'll put a link to that in the notes, of course. So the bridge opening was a truly huge event, but it was not all going to run completely to plan. Sir Isaac Isaacs, King George V's representative as Governor-General, read His Majesty's message congratulating the people of Sydney. And the New South Wales Premier, Jack Lang, delivered what has come to be regarded as a landmark speech. It was a thoughtful and respectful speech, observing the British and Australian flags flying at the peak of the now-joined arch, representing the bonds of empire, but noting also that the new bridge was a symbol of Australia's development, future and independence, talking of a more cordial and healthy alliance, rather than the youthful colonial dependence. But as it turned out, in 1932, these ideas proved just a little too radical for most. It was time, though, for the ceremonial scissors. But before Lang could cut the ribbon, Francis de Groot, a zone commander in Campbell's new guard, forced his way to the front. Dressed in his army uniform, on horseback, he lurched forward, ready to upstage Lang. He loudly declared the bridge open, in the name of the decent and respectable people of New South Wales and he sliced the ribbon with his ceremonial sabre before Lang could get to it. Stealing Lang's thunder was for the new guard an important symbolic protest. De Groot was immediately hauled away and charged, but later the charges were downgraded, and he never really was officially punished for these actions. Officials just retied the ribbon, and Lang went ahead and gave the bridge opening its official snip. Despite the shock of de Groot's action, there were great celebrations and afterwards the public could walk across the new bridge. It would be 50 years before a crowd was allowed to do so again en masse. The Sydney folks were very happy with their new bridge and the ease it brought to the transport, but the political angst continued. Only a couple of months later, on the 13th of May 1932, with the bridge then completed, open and in use, the Governor of New South Wales revoked Lang's commission effectively sacking the government. It was a move that was to have a similar recurrence federally in 1975. 
An election was called shortly afterwards and Lang's government was soundly defeated. But at least Sydney had its wonderful bridge in place and the new guard lost its momentum then and faded into obscurity. Final bridge costs that I've seen quoted range from about £4.2 million to £6.25 million, although at least one document states that with the costs of the approaches, the land compensation and the interest paid during construction, the total cost of the build was probably closer to £10 million. Tolls were instituted to help pay for the bridge and they were finally lifted when the debt was cleared 56 years later in 1988. The bridge now transports more traffic than ever with two rail lines, a bike track, traffic lanes now expanded from the original six up to eight and a pedestrian walkway. Daily carrying more than 200 trains, 160,000 vehicles and 1,900 bicycles. All of that squeezed into its 49 metre width and just over one kilometre length. The exposed steel is painted every five years in what must still be a tedious and dangerous task. One famous painter left the bridge in the 1970s to take up a career in comedy, later becoming world famous as Mick Dundee in the Crocodile Dundee films. Paul Hogan is probably the bridge's most famous alumni now. And of course, in recent years, members of the public can now have that painter's experience of scaling the arch, albeit with safety harnesses and a guide. On the bridge's 50th anniversary in 1982, Sydney Harbour Bridge was closed to traffic and pedestrians were, for only the second time, allowed full access to the deck. In May of 2000, the bridge was once again closed to traffic to enable a walk for reconciliation. Attended by upwards of 250,000 people, the walk was intended as a symbolic gesture of crossing a divide to demonstrate public support for meaningful reconciliation between Australia's Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. In 2007, on its 75th birthday, the public got another opportunity to walk en masse across the famous bridge, this time in the evening. But probably the most spectacular use of the bridge, outside its core business, are the New Year's Eve fireworks that are launched from the structure. Reflected over the beautiful harbour and with many public vantage points on and off the water around Sydney, this is an experience worth making a trip for. The Dorman Long Building and fabrication sites around the bridge were rehabilitated and the area now houses the Lunar Park venue and the Municipal Swimming Pool. The rocks surviving buildings are now deemed beautiful heritage structures and it's now a highly attractive tourist area. So our hats off to the pollies who finally got their act together, to the designers and the engineers and to the builders. Thanks so much for this impressive icon. Let's toast our famous coat hanger, the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The people in the street hear the tramping of the feet today, so holiday. Flags are flying everywhere, carnival is in the air, down old Sydney way. Bands are playing, here they come, listen to the big bass drum, listen to that hip hooray. When the planes up in the sky fly above the span so high, they're opening the bridge today. What does everybody say? It's the bridge we've been waiting for. Like a giant of steel, at last the dream is real. Doesn't it make you feel you love old Sydney more? Right across the dear old harbour, there's an ever-open door. 
Australia's sons, let us rejoice. It's the bridge we've been waiting for. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. I expect to do one or two more single episodes next before embarking on a more in-depth series again. I hope you'll stick with me for that. If you have enjoyed the podcast to date, could I ask you to take a moment to log into iTunes and leave me a healthy review there to boost my ranking? It's nice to see the effort reflected in increased listeners and the ranking is really the only way to improve the podcast's visibility. Apart from you sharing it with podcast listening friends, of course. Before I finish up, this month I wanted to recommend the History of English podcast. It's a potty about the history and development of the English language. If you are in any way a word nerd, or actually if you just like to look at history from another perspective, Kevin is presenting an extremely well-researched chronological program showing the roots of the English language and its development and influences over time. You may be surprised at just how interesting this is. If you want a taster, go to his episodes page and choose an episode from a time period you might like. Say, Norse words and a new English, or love songs and troubadours, and see how the use and development of the language has been impacted by those historical events throughout time. I'll put a link to it from my page, of course. And remember that there are some images and the reading list for this episode on the webpage at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. I hope to get the next potty out around the fourth Friday next month. We're done with engineering for a while. It might be an explorer next time. So thanks so much to those of you who have supported the podcast to date. It's very much appreciated. Have a safe and happy few weeks and I'll talk to you again then. Cheers. Thank you.